We have an important update on today's episode. Dr. Scott Stripling, Director of Excavations with the Associates for Biblical Research, joins us to discuss the publication of the peer-reviewed article regarding the curse tablet discovery on Mount Ebal that we first told you about last year. Dr. Stripling is sharing with us new images and new details from that discovery. That conversation is coming up next on En-ROADS. Welcome to En-ROADS, where we share real-world examples of digital evangelism and provide tips on how you can use today's technology to spread the gospel. Learn more about us and watch our free video series at appianmedia.org. For our listeners of the En-ROADS podcast, we've got an exclusive discount code for you. We'll give that discount code out a little bit later in the episode. But right now, let's get right into our conversation with Scott Stripling. All right, Scott, it's good to see you again, man. Hey, what's up, Appian Media? <laughs> so do, do us a favor and, and just bring our viewers up to speed. Tell us what you announced last year so that way anyone who maybe hasn't been following this knows what's going on. Well, exactly one year ago, we held a press conference at the Lanier Theological Library in Houston. Uh, you guys were there along with many other members of, of the media for this, this press conference which has since then been seen by somewhere between 25 million to 50 million people, the best I can tell. Uh, In today's world, it's hard to count, you know, and know exactly what the (laughs) metrics are. But a lot of people, including, I think, your own video prop had massive, uh, massive views. Um, Basically, what we announced was that we had discovered a small folded lead tablet, what we call a defixio or a curse tablet, while we were wet sifting the dump piles on Mount Ebal, which is the biblical mountain of the curse. So in a nutshell, it was important because it had very early Hebrew writing that we were able to see using tomographic scanning in Prague, Czechoslovakia. We could see not only that it had early Hebrew writing, but it's a proto-alphabetic script, which is the earliest form of of Hebrew writing. And it had words that only Israelites used. And by the way, that's how you tell the difference between Canaanite and Hebrew, because they're both using the same alphabet. It's are, are there words that only Canaanites use or words that only Israelites use? And there's only a few, really. And one of those would be Yahweh. And indeed, we had the name of God, Yahoo, the name of God twice on the inscription. So that's why it was a big deal. And that's what we announced last year. Yeah, and you and you mentioned uh, the curse tablet. Uh, it's actually referenced in Deuteronomy that uh, Mount Ebal would be the um, the place where these curses would be pronounced. So that's kind of the connection there, correct? Yeah. So Deuteronomy eleven and then Deuteronomy twenty seven. Moses told the Israelites, "When you come into the land and you gain a foothold, you're going to go to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal." Well, what he doesn't tell them, but he didn't have to because they already knew, was in between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal is ancient Shechem, where the the patriarchs had deep ties, and also where Abram cut covenant with God at Elon More is right there. So I think that's why Moses tells them to go to that spot, is because they're essentially renewing the Abrahamic covenant, which has the blessings, what's going to happen to you if you keep the covenant, and the consequences that are going to happen if you if you violate the covenant. Blessings from Mount Gerizim, curses from Mount Ebal, and then Joshua 8 says that they actually did it. They, they went there, they did it, and Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal, which was the mountain of the curse. Okay, okay. So 
So you have now, this, this announcement was made last year, but you have now published your findings in the Heritage Science Journal. Um, so tell us, how big of a step is this in the research process um, for an archaeological discovery? Well, it's, it's very important. Uh, the publication is the end goal of archaeology. Our, our goal is not excavation, it's publication. Because if all we do is excavate and we don't publish, we destroy the evidence in the process of excavation and we make it inaccessible to others. No one can ever go back and replicate that experiment. And so this has always been the end goal. We made an, an announcement and we now have the academic publication. Uh, thank, thank the good Lord. Uh, lots of hard work going into this and my, my collaborative team, I appreciate all of their hard work. But now the, the world of academia can analyze our findings as it should be. And I think that we've made a very strong case. Heritage Science uh, agreed with us. This is one of the most highly rated journals that there are in academia. Hmm. It's in the 92nd percentile of peer-reviewed journals. That means that 92% of journals have a lower site score than Heritage Science. So it's very highly rated, was a very uh, rigorous process, and we're confident that uh, even if someone disagrees with our reading, that they're going to agree that, that this is a proto-alphabetic script and that we do have uniquely Hebrew words within it. And I think you keep uh, honing in on the script. Uh, why is that such a big deal, this proto-alphabetic script, uh, the timing that you put on it uh, as to when it, it was written, all of that? Why does all of that matter? All right, that matters because the biblical date for the Exodus and the conquest puts us entering Israel around 1406 BC. So what we're looking at is we're investigating. We have an ancient source, the Bible, that indicates, and as your readers or viewers probably realize, I wrote chapter one for Zondervan's five years on the Exodus. And so all my reasoning is in that chapter of why that's the biblical date. So we have a hypothesis and then we test it through the material culture. And so indeed, in this case, we uncover a script that is known from that time period. In other words, it no longer exists by the time you get to the 13th century, certainly by the 12th century. So the style of letters change. And if people have looked at old Bibles, let's say original King James Bibles, they're gonna go, oh, why, why does the S look like an F? <laughs> And that's just 400 years ago. So there's a change in script. Uh, most people are familiar with Paleo-Hebrew or Biblical Hebrew. That's what the Old Testament is written in. And even, much say, the Dead Sea Scrolls, because they venerated that script, they continue to use it in sacred matters. What we're talking about here is when Egyptian hieroglyphs are beginning to morph into Hebrew letters. So, for example, Moses knew Middle Egyptian. Uh, if you're taking the Bible literally, mm -hmm. um, he would have known Middle Egyptian. And there's about 700 symbols within Middle Egyptian. Well, imagine Moses trying to write the Pentateuch with 700 different letters. Right. That would be, you know, take, take a library to record all of this. But with a 22-letter phonetic alphabet, all of a sudden that becomes very possible. Well, unfortunately, we have many scholars coming from, from the left and many seminaries who have told us for several generations, really ever since Wellhausen, that Moses was illiterate, Joshua was illiterate, 
the Bible itself, the corpus of the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, did not come into its formation until, say, the Hellenistic period or the Persian period, so a thousand years after, after Moses. So we have no eyewitness uh, accounts. What we have here is a script that dates from the late Bronze Age, and epigraphers, paleographers and epigraphers, that's what they specialize in, knowing the script from different time periods. And so that's part of the case that we set forward, in my case, with Peter Vanderveen and Gershom Galil as my epigraphers. We established that the script is most likely from that cusp, what we would call the beginning of LB2, uh, end of LB1B, the beginning of LB2A, or around 1400 BC and no later than 1200. Well, that's very problematic, of course, for a late date of the Exodus, <laughs> because this, this, this script is not in use at that time. Now, we also have the archaeological context at Mount Ebal, which points to the same time period, and we have a scientific analysis of the lead itself, where it came from a mine in Greece, Labrion, Greece, that was in use at that very same time period. So three metrics that cause us to converge on that, that date. So I know when I've spoken to people about this, uh, you are correct. When we published our video on YouTube, it it quickly went viral. And they're asking Stuart and I all these questions like we were the ones who made the discovery, which <laughs> probably would have been hilarious to you. And But a lot of the questions that I was getting was, what did it say? And and when you gave the translation, they said, well, I don't find that in the Bible. Why is that important? And for the layman, basically what you've just told us is it's not so much what was written the words on the tablet, it is important, Yahweh's mention, but it's important the type of language used and mm -hmm. the material itself that it was written on indicates a very important time, time frame. I, I hope that's appropriate for me to kind of put it in, in layman's terms here. Um, it's when it was written, more important than yeah. exactly what was written, right? Yeah, that's a very good point, Craig. Um, Think about what most people would believe is the oldest book in the Bible, uh, the book of Job, um, along with Genesis. So most people would take Job as there's no reference to the Mosaic law. So they're going to take it as being very, very early. Um, what do we read in Job 19.24? Oh, that my words were written on a lead tablet with an iron pen. <laughs> okay, so there's that very ancient idea of writing on lead. It becomes binding then. And so in the ancient mind, this is a very important thing. Now, the analogy for the type of script, let me give you this. Um, in, in another lifetime, I earned a master's degree in English. And so I know quite a bit about the formation of the English language. And we have, for example, modern English that we speak today. Well, we have Texan, which is a variant of that. But say we have Texan, and then we have modern English. We have Middle English, and then we have Old English. So when we think of Middle English, we're talking about, say, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Um, you're going to understand most of it. But if you start reading Old English today, take Cademan's hymn, the oldest version of English that we have comes from a Christian hymn from the fifth century called Cademan's hymn. You won't recognize most of those words. You'll, a few of them you'll be able to pick out, but that's Old English. So Old English leads to Middle English, which leads to Modern English. You have the exact same thing with the development of Hebrew. You have modern Hebrew. 
you have biblical or Paleo-Hebrew, and then you have the predecessor of that, which is Proto-Alphabetic Hebrew. This is Proto-Alphabetic Hebrew, so it is even older than the biblical text itself. Now, that's kind of cool on a lot of levels. For example, in number six, the opposite of the curse, of course, is the blessing. So you get the priestly blessing in number six. And, and God says to Moses, after he tells him what to say, may the Lord bless you and keep you and be gracious to you and cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. He says, and so shall you put my name on the people. You will put my name on them. Well, what did the name of God look like in 1400 BC? When, when God said that to Moses, what picture did Moses have in his mind of he's putting the name of God? We now know for the first time. And when we have the, the, the proto-alphabetic images of, for example, the He, the Yod Hevav, but the He with the man with his arms raised in worship, integral to the very nature of God. So in the blessing, we're putting the name of God uh, on these people. So mm-hmm. it opens up new insights for us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you said last year at the press conference, the discovery of the cursed tablet is significant because you're dealing with something that is older than any early Hebrew script that has ever been published, certainly from Israel, by at least 200 years. So do you still stand by that statement? And and how old are you dating this cursed tablet? I do stand by that, and it's at least 200 years, up to 400 years older than any previously known Hebrew script. So if we're taking the Kerbic Kayafa Ostrakhan as as the oldest that there's broad agreement on, at least, then we're dating this between 1200 and 1400 BC. In my view, and in the view of Peter Vanderveen, one of my epigraphers, we're talking about 1400 BC. Gershon Galil sees it a little bit later uh, than we do, but still within that LB2 timeframe. So this is why we said at least 200 years older, but in my view, probably 400 years older. But the name of God, Stu, is even older than that. Okay, so this is this is even hundreds of years older than references to Yahweh that we have outside the Bible prior to this time. And of course, in academia, many times the Bible isn't good enough. We're, they're looking for synchronisms outside the Bible. Now, we do have the name Yahweh down in Egypt on the soul of hieroglyph, and that dates to about, say, 1360, 1370 BC. So right after the period when the Bible says there was an exodus from Egypt, Amenhotep III has this soul of hieroglyph, and he refers to the land of the Shasu, or the nomads, of Yahu. Again, the three-letter spelling, Yotevav, the land of the Shasu, the nomads, of Yahu. So by 1360, we've already got a people who worship Yahweh who have their own land. So, but that's outside of Israel. Now, I'm saying within Israel itself, now we find a corollary to that, the same three-letter spelling from just, just before it. So it's it's kind of what I would call verisimilitude. It's what you would expect to find if you were dealing with a, a reality. And you mentioned the Kerbet Kiafa Ostrakhan. The Silver Scrolls, I guess, is another one that people might be familiar with as well. But that's even... Uh, uh, what you, earlier, newer, I guess you could say. It's it's yeah. more recent, correct? Yeah, the silver scrolls come from Ketef Hinnom, a, a necropolis in, uh, in the Hinnom Valley, and it has the priestly blessing of Numbers uh, 6, and it survives because it's on metal, it's on silver, just like our tablet survives because it's it's on lead. 
our biblical manuscripts, the oldest that we have, you know, papyrus type manuscripts or, or parchment, maybe about 300 BC, the earliest Dead Sea Scrolls, because you know, it's a, it's a textile that's not going to survive uh, in perpetuity, but the metals will. The, the priestly blessing is sort of the corollary to that. If you set the two side by side, the number six blessing, and then the tablet from Manibal, you've got the blessings uh, and, and the curses. Mm. And we even have that same text, by the way, from uh, the number six text from a, a large storage jar, what we would call a pithos, at a site in the Sinai called uh, called uh, Kuntilet Adrud, and at Kuntilet Adrud you have a pithos with the same text that's hundred years older. So it's on pottery, so it has survived. It's not on paper. So there you have two examples of that Pentateuchal passage that are very very early, and with time I'm sure we'll recover even more in older ones. You know we're getting fragmentary pieces and sort of taking this great great puzzle of history and putting it back together. So, a uh, question for you here. Your colleague, uh, Professor Gershon Galal, the, the head of the Institute of Biblical Research and Ancient History at the University of Haifa, uh, told the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, this is the silver bullet that will eliminate all doubts about the Bible in Israeli archaeology. That's really strong language. That's extremely strong language. How how does this publication, this peer review, um, eliminate those doubts, or does it? Yeah, I think um, I, I wish that it did. Uh, maybe I would have just worded it slightly differently and say it should eliminate all of those <laughs> doubts. You will always have skeptics, and um, in in my view, and I have difficulty, as you guys know, bifurcating my faith from my academic life. I may think they're one in the same. Um, I think about one third of the people with whom we deal have a proclivity toward unbelief. And about one third of the people have a proclivity toward belief. And about one third are in the middle. They're persuadable. You know, they're looking at evidence. And if they've got bad information, then they're believing incorrect things. And if they've got good information, they're believing other things. I think it's that third in the middle that that we hope will be persuaded. I know many already have, but we hope others will be with the academic publication, uh, which will tilt the scales, if you will, uh, toward a, a biblical worldview, a biblical paradigm. I'm not expecting the one third on the, if you will, far left who have a proclivity toward unbelief that they're all of a sudden going to go, oh, we're so glad that Stripling and his his gang came along and and straighten us out on this or something like that. Mm-hmm. So let's move into um, this this past year, you've been writing the uh, article and um, you said at the, at the press conference, you know, when you made the announcement, you said there was more that was going to be coming out. So uh, do you have that full text and uh, have you discovered anything new since the announcement was made uh, a year ago? Yes, um, we have slightly tweaked the reading. It essentially says the same thing. You have arur, or cursed, repetitively. Uh, you have the name of God twice, and it is a chiasm. Uh, 48 letters. At the time of the press conference, we thought we had 40. Ultimately, we we're publishing 48 letters. And um, the, the reading essentially says, cursed, 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 cursed are you by the God Yahweh, Cursed, you will surely die. Cursed are you by what Yahweh? Curse, curse, curse. This is essentially what it's saying, kind of like a, a chiasm within the Psalms, where you're saying it and then saying the same thing in a in an inverted manner. 
um, what what we know now is that on the outside of the tablet, we have essentially the same text. Um, and, and this is known, by the way, with the, the cuneiform tablets, the Amarna letters, you have an envelope that, that the tablet goes into. It's a clay envelope. You have the same message on the envelope as you have on the tablet. So it's a type of redundancy, if you will. Hmm. We have essentially the same message on the outside as we have on the inside. And that's what led us to do the press conference last March was because I had released photographs of the outside, not knowing that there was text on it. And scholars were beginning to detect letters and and suggest readings of that. And we were in jeopardy of losing our own academic publication. Oh, and that's why we did the press conference at the, at the time. But we also know other things. When people read the article, which is free, it's open access and it's free. Uh, so Heritage Science is a hardcover, hard version that subscribers get. But it goes up open access online. So anybody can download it. And anybody can read it, and it's technical, of course, but anyone can read it and access it. And uh, and when they do, they'll see uh, uh, several facts in there that they may not have known before, like the uh, the styluses that were used to write. There were at least two different styluses that were used, and we recovered two styluses in from the dump as well. Hmm. Now okay. I cannot prove that those were the styluses that that were used, but there's a likelihood that they were um, because they're consistent with the type that, that made the markings. I just want to remind everybody uh, in your, your audience, how small this is. We're talking about a business card folded in half. Hmm. That's the size. Yeah. Of it. Yeah. It is small. So when you're talking about, so you've got outside a outside B inside a inside B. So on take inside B, for example, you've got 48 letters. So they're tiny letters. Mm -hmm. So not only are we seeing them through tomographic scans, which is kind of a miracle. I mean, two big technologies that came into play, wet sifting and tomographic scanning. And that's why heritage science was a good choice, because there's a lot of science that that went into this. OK, we archaeology is a soft science, but we interface with all of the hard science mm -hmm. uh, like this. So you're talking then about tiny letters that are written vertically and horizontally and, and forward and backward. And that's the way it was. Everybody who's an epigrapher knows that there was no standardization of the text at the time. So to, to decipher the text, to first clearly see the letters, because you're not even seeing them with the naked eye, we're seeing them through the lead in these scans. And that's a process of getting them. And then to be certain, because listen, we've got to cross every I and dot, dot every I and cross every T because our work's going to be gone over and it's going to be criticized and so forth. So this is why we were very careful. We had to research every letter and find parallels of it. But it's all squeezed into this little bitty lead tablet. 3,400 years ago, that tablet is closed. It's malleable at that point. It's not now, of course, it's brittle. So it's closed and it's thrown onto the altar. And we believe it came from the altar because Zertal's own notes say that the material from the altar, he dumped into the east dump pile. And that's where this came from. We were keeping track of what came from where. It was from the east dump pile. So it appears that that curse, which I think is a self-imprecatory curse, incidentally. I don't think it's an individual putting a, trying to curse someone else. I think it's a, a titular sort of a curse on behalf of the nation. We're binding ourselves to the covenant. 
and may these curses come upon us. And that's the language, by the way, of Deuteronomy 11, 27, and Joshua 8. May these curses inure to us if we violate your covenant. It's essentially the Abrahamic covenant as well. And it's laid on the altar. Now, the picture is this. What happens on the altar? The shedding of innocent blood to cover the guilty. And so innocent animals are killed. Their blood then is sprinkled on the altar where the tablet is. Do you see the picture? The the shedding of innocent blood to cover the guilty. Mm -hmm. So the word curse is first introduced in Genesis chapter 3. And also in Genesis chapter 3, what do you get? The shedding of innocent blood to cover the guilty. And that theme winds its way all the way through the Bible. And what we have here in 2022, 2023, is we have a stark reminder in the midst of our modernity that there is an ancient curse and there's an ancient immunity, I guess might be a good word. You know, there's there's, through, (laughs) through the blood, there's an immunity to the curse. Yes, yes. Let's talk about that scanning process. I know that was that was new to us. We had no idea that anything existed that would allow you to see through metal. I mean, that sounds like the stuff mm-hmm. of science fiction. Um, can, can you give us some some insight into um, for for those who are curious? Is that a reliable means of detection? Is that is that a reliable science? You're trying to make me believe that you can see halfway through. <laughs> impenetrable metal and you've discovered so clear 48 character I'm 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 paraphrasing the comments that we got on our YouTube channel like that's yeah. impossible he can't possibly have read something so small through lead explain this process is it reliable and and what means do we have to know that it, it can be trusted I was perplexed as well when we got the tablet I knew that it was lead because our our metal detector gives us a different sound when it's one metal or another so I knew that it was lead, and I've, I've seen hundreds of these, by the way. The, a defixio is a known quantity in archaeology. The conundrum here is that we knew them commonly from the later time periods, Hellenistic and, and Roman periods especially. We, we did not know of examples from an earlier time period. And so, but yet here, everything in the archaeological context was shouting, you know, 1200 to 1400 B.C., Yet here's this defixio that seems to be out of place. And I warned our team immediately about this. We don't know. And I'm not aware of any examples from that earlier time period. I did not know, Craig, that you could scan through lead. Hmm. I don't know if I picked this up Superman or something like that, that, you know, you couldn't scan through lead. Or I'm thinking about when I go to the dentist, you know, and they put that lead thing on me when they do x-rays. And so somewhere in my mind, I had it that lead was impenetrable. Um, but as I began to do my research, um, I found that th- this lab in Prague had published peer-reviewed articles and that they had indeed scanned through lead and had recovered text. Hmm. Um, I knew we could do it with other, other you know, thinner metals, and I knew that we could do it with, with like burned scrolls at Herculaneum, those carbonized scrolls. We're able to scan through those, but that's, that's papyrus. So I was just very pleasantly surprised when I found this lab and we began to form, bring them into our collaboration. And ultimately we were able to obtain an export permit, export the, um, the tablet to Prague. And through the scans, we, yes, were literally able to see uh, on the inside. And the whole process is detailed in the, in the academic article. So I hope those who have been critical will now 
um, those who have perhaps besmirched uh, our names, I hope they'll they'll go back and have the decency to read through the process. And it's really you, you can't argue about the fact that it is possible to penetrate uh, through the lead. Yeah, because that's um, something now that you have made available that was not made available last year. Last year, you gave us drawings of what you found on yeah. the inside, but now you are publishing the scans. We now have images yeah, of, of what you're there. able to see. All the scans are in there, including a link that er, the viewer or the scholar can go and see the whole process of the development of from one letter to the next wow. by clicking on the link that we provided in the article. So not only did we give it open access to everyone, but we provided even beyond what you would have in, in an article, we left a link that somebody then can go and do their own research. Listen, we welcome academia to kick this thing around. All I said in the end, um, and I think it was a very, a lot of talent in this collaboration. Uh, all I said in the end was, to the best of our ability, this is what we think it says. And if you remember the press conference, I said, I know there will be other readings because it can be read forward or backward and upside down. It can be read as the ox plows, boustrophodon manner. Uh, I just think to the weight of evidence is this is what it says. So now we're giving it to the academic community. I think many, hopefully most, will agree with, with our reading. And then there will be all kinds of alternate readings, I'm sure, as well. That's how academia works. And you've shared a couple of And the stakes are that. high. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very high. Uh, and you've shared a couple of those scans with us, and we'll have those uh, in the video on YouTube and uh, available on our website as well. So uh, our audience can go and look at those. Let yeah. me say one more word about that. Sure. It's because this is very important uh, and gets back to your question, Craig. It's not just that we're seeing what we think is a is a he or an aleph. We have protrusions on the back. So the stylus, when he goes into the lead, is creating protrusions on the exterior of the tablet. Hmm. And we show that in the article too. So it's not just what we think we're seeing with our eyes. We have the negative on the outside of the tablet hmm. in, with many of the letters. We have the negative in the protrusions. And I think that's also important. It's all of those little details combined together. I mean, it's, it's, it's you're reading a, a code. I, I, yeah. Let me ask you one more question before we go to break. Uh, now that this is uh, published and released, where does an object like this go? If it really has this much value, uh, where does it go? Well, that's a good question. It's currently in storage at, these, at the Antiquities Authority in a, in a vault. Um, and now that it's become a big story, they've got it you know, carefully guarded there. Uh, it should be displayed in the National Museum of Israel. Um, I, I think once the academia runs its course here, that's where I, where I hope it will be displayed. Um, in reality, when things come from Judea and Samaria in the modern world, what we call the West Bank area of Judea, Samaria, areas A, B, and C, um, there, there are inerrant politics that come to play. And there's a lot of pressure on museums not to display artifacts from Judea Samaria. And our editor who published this for Heritage Science, as I said, you know, in the 92nd percentile of, of journals, uh, you know, kudos to him because he took some pressure you know, not to publish this. And um, he said, hey, you know, it's, it's very well written. It's very controversial, but 
that's how are we ever going to develop new ideas if we shy away from alternate viewpoints and so forth. So I hope it will be displayed at Israel's National Museum, but um, I won't be holding my breath. Interesting. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we want to talk about your other work, your work at Shiloh, uh, and uh, ask you another question about uh, another discovery that was recently made. All that coming up in just a minute. So, Craig, I think we should give people free money. What are your thoughts about that? I like free money. I also like giving people free things. So how are we doing that? Are you you paying for this? I'm paying for this. How's this working? (laughs) Okay. How about a promo code instead for a nice discount off products on our brand new website? Yes. Yes. I love it. Now we are talking. For the listeners of the Inroads podcast, you can take 20% off your next purchase on appianmedia.org using promo code PODCAST20 at checkout. That's 20% off your entire cart. So don't be afraid to fill it up. Yeah, fill that cart up. Appian Media has premium workbooks with QR codes and full-color images that go along with our free documentaries. Or if you'd like, you can purchase the digital version of the workbook for your church Bible class, homeschool group, or small group study. We also have DVDs, Blu-rays, and even some Appian Media swag and gift cards. The products are high quality, and we'll take your Bible study to the next level. So visit appianmedia.org and use promo code PODCAST20 to get your 20% off today. Now back to our interview with Scott Stripling. So we're back talking with Scott Stripling. just recently, I mean, within the past, what, a few weeks, month, uh, there was a discovery that was made um, at Lachish of what was believed to be a King Darius inscription. It later came out that it was not, it was a fake, or it was uh, just... Written a whole lot earlier than, it, yeah. or, you know, more recent than <laughs> they thought it was. So th- I guess this is a good example of how important it is to make sure everything, all like you said, all of the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed. Uh, just kind of talk a little bit about how often uh, you get something that you think this could be big and it ends up not being anything. Well, it does happen, and this is a good example. Uh, when when they released this uh, photo, had a press conference and released this photo, um, just looking at the internet photo, I was immediately bothered because the the scratchings were very fresh. You could see fresh clay uh, on this potsherd. What we when it has writing, we call it an ostracon. So it's a, a piece of pottery that has writing on it. It's a potsherd with writing equals an ostracon. I could see fresh clay and I thought, well, that's strange. That sort of puzzled me because over time, you know, that, that clay forms a patina to it where the scratchings occurred. Um, and then I looked at the shirt again, it's just a body shirt and I'm only seeing it online. But I thought, well, I said to some of my students that that shirt looks like it's from a later time period, like Roman or Byzantine period, you know, so just sort of said that in passing, but here the IAA are the ones who published this or made the announcement and right. supposedly they have an academic publication going away. They're the ones who are supposed to be keeping an eye on Ivory. <laughs> They're the ones who are supposed to be the experts. And then lo and behold, within a few hours, you get a lady comes out. Uh, I don't know if she's a, a scholar or not, but I must've been on some level because she says she was sitting at Lachish with her group or her students and she's showing them how they wrote on pottery in ancient times. And they wrote like this. And 
scratched it. And when she finished, she just threw it down. Oh, That's what a tourist oh found, <laughs> turned in. The Antiquities Authority then oh. then ran with it and, and published it. Mm. So um I believe the lady um, that that's that's actually what happened. So these things can happen. I guess that's one of the benefits of a sealed <laughs> tablet right. like that's we true. have. You know, I laughed after our press conference when people said, yeah, that could have been a forgery. They could have forged that. Oh, if only I were smart enough to write in a proto-alphabetic script on a sealed tablet. That would be <laughs> inside. Yeah, that would be impressive. Yeah. <laughs> um, so our, our viewers may remember our, our first real interaction with you, Scott, was uh, when you joined us for our production in, uh, in Israel for Searching for a King, and you took us to Shiloh, you took us to the IAA, which still is one of my absolute highlights. <laughs> uh, just You could walk through that place for, for weeks and weeks. You have continued your work, you and your team, at Shiloh, and so 2022 was a, was a big season for you all and your team there at the Associates for Biblical Research. Uh, talk to us about that season. How did it turn out? What were some things that, that you all discovered there? We have known for several seasons that there was a monumental building emerging on the northern slope of the Tell uh, that dated to the period of the Tabernacle. Um, it was east-west. I knew from the very first wall, from season one, we, we knew that we had a large building beginning to emerge. Each season, we got another wall and a perpendicular wall and a cross wall, and we could then extrapolate dimensions from this. So just a little bit more each season. 2022 was kind of a watershed because we exposed enough of the building that we can, with a pretty high degree of confidence, recreate it now we haven't even reached floor level in it yet it's a really big building hmm. and so i truly do need another season to to be able to make a, a formal public announcement on this but uh the the words already out there uh, of of what we have uh it it's matches the dimensions given in the bible for the mishkan the tabernacle it's tripartite so it's divided on a two to one ratios of holy to most holy space and um, we have near it a demolished four-horned altar adjacent to it, and we have ceramic pomegranates around it, which is the motif of the tabernacle with the high priest wore on their hem of their garments. And then we have storage rooms immediately to the north of it that are full of storage jars from the period of the tabernacle. Wow. And then we have a bone deposit due east. If you walked about 30 or 40 seconds from this monumental building, you would come to this massive pavisa or, or bone deposit with bones only from the biblical sacrificial uh, system full of pottery from the time of Joshua and just after the time of, of Joshua. So all that together says to me that you're likely looking at the platform of the tabernacle at Shiloh. Now, you may be thinking, wait a minute, I didn't know there was a platform and you know, I thought it was a tent. Well, this is where it gets kind of interesting. For, for the readers, if they'll open their Bibles to 1 Samuel 3, and notice at the beginning of the chapter, even in English, you're talking with temporary language, the curtains of the tabernacle, for example. By the end of chapter 3, you now have permanent language, mm -hmm. uh, the doors of the tabernacle, the walls of the tabernacle. And in Hebrew, it's very clear something has changed here. There's a shift. All right, now add to that. So it starts with the biblical text itself. Good investigative work does. And listen, guys, in that part of the world, the Bible's our go-to source. And so, you know, here we have an ancient text, says that the tabernacle was at Shiloh. We read it in multiple languages. We know that there's something going on in the text. 
And now as we excavate, I'm more surprised than anyone when we begin to uncover this building because I just published an article saying I thought it was on the summit of the site. All right. So now I wish I could say it was my great archaeological instincts that led us to that. I was I'm as surprised as anybody. Now we take the the Mishnah and we have two places in the Mishnah, the Seder Olam and the Zevachim, um, both about second century uh, sources. They both say that a platform for the tabernacle was built at Shiloh with walls and a tent was over the top of it. So it's a quasi temple tabernacle, according to those sources, the Mishnaic sources. Well, we we gave a lot of weight to those sources because of what we had seen in 1 Samuel 3 in the original Hebrew text. Okay, so it's the Hebrew text, the two citations from the Mishnah, and now we come excavate. What do we find? a building that matches the dimensions of the of the tabernacle that orients east-west. And it appears that in this case, the writers of the Mishnah nailed it. So, so and I'm trying to visualize this in my head, but this is basically a, a tent that's sitting over top of like walls. Uh, and you said that you haven't dug down all the way to the floor yet. What potentially could be in there, if anything? Right. Well, we always want to find the floor level. Um, because, you know, you're going to find very datable things. The floor gives you separation. So if we can date uh, above it and beneath it, then we can be certain of our, of our time period. So we have not even uh, uh, reached that yet. Hopefully this coming season uh, we will. But Stu, you're trying to picture in your mind a building without a roof, essentially. Right. So it's, it's a tent that is over it. Here's the the deal. We also have in the city of David, I don't know if you saw the program I did on uh, TBN with Jim Scudder in Grace on David's Tabernacle. Um, I took them to the Gihon Spring in the city of David, and right next to the Gihon Spring, you have walls. You have a cultic area. I take them through why we know it's a cultic area, and then you have walls, and it's right next to the Gihon Spring, and it dates to the time of David and Solomon. Now, what does the Bible say was happening adjacent to the Gihon Spring at that time? It says that David's tabernacle was there. So you may have the very same thing taking place there. You may have walls with a tent over that structure. Those walls may even be, they're carved in bedrock. They may even be older and date to an earlier time period, but they continue in use in Solomon's time. He's then anointed adjacent to the Gihon Spring, which is right where David's tabernacle uh, was. So I think you've got a corollary of how it was done at that time. It doesn't become permanent until the temple itself is built. Okay. <clears throat> so uh, 2023 season's coming up fast. Um, yep. What uh, you kind of alluded to it, but what are you hoping to discover or how much progress do you hope to make on this platform? We have a big team coming with us this year. 220 people are registered. Wow. So it's the, by far the largest team we've ever had. For the first time ever, we've cut off registrations. <laughs> okay. I never thought we'd reach this well, point. Some exciting things uh, are happening. I'm sure recruitment wasn't hard this year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's right. It, it, it really is. There's a lot of excitement. Um, and as I said, the stakes are high. We want to continue to expose this monumental building very systematically sort of like draining the water in a bathtub. We're just bringing it down levelly and exposing what's there, documenting as we go. 
we also have what we believe is a gate, maybe the gate of Shiloh on the north. And of course, the Bible mentions the gate of Shiloh. Eli's the, Eli's there when he dies. And so we thought for several seasons that's what we were uncovering. We now know as of last year that we have a gate. So we will continue to work in the gate area, the monumental building area, and then area D, which is where the bone deposit is. We're now Last season, we began for the first time to actually excavate the bone deposit. And so I brought in a brand new zoo archaeologist from University of Toronto who's joining our team. And we'll be working through that that matrix. And boy, that's going to be interesting to, to publish because my initial findings are that it's disproportionately from the right side of the animal. And so now we'll go and we'll check that out. And I'm sure we'll have a lot of fascinating things. Um, finally, we're going to go to the interior. We're going to do our first squares on the near the summit of the tail on the interior of the city that may help us better understand the overall picture of life in antiquity at ancient Shiloh. So when you talk about the right side of the animal or the right parts of the animal, th those are the parts that were specifically described as um, as being sacrificed. There were there were certain parts of the animal that were meant for the those burnt. Well. Things. Okay, well, the whole animal, let's say, is sacrificed, but the priest portion Correct. is the right side. Yeah. Leviticus 7. Okay. And so Shiloh, you have a priestly population there, so it would, should not surprise us. In fact, we probably should even anticipate that we would have more right side bones than left side bones. That's and we're talking tens of thousands of bones here, so right. it's not like it's an anomaly. It's just such a cool thing because yeah. things that you read in the Bible and then you're finding evidence of that that goes hand in hand. I mean, that's yep. just so faith-building. And I hope this isn't offensive to you at all, Scott, but these are the parts of the Bible, the description of the sacrifices in the Law of Moses that most of us go, I really struggle staying awake <laughs> while I read that. I mean, no disrespect to the Bible, but it, it it is fairly repetitious, and you're thinking, what does this have to do with me? You know, as a first-century Christian, what does this have to do with me? And yet, it's those bones, of all things, that are giving us this uh, assurances to our faith, bolstering... A point to the uh, authenticity. That's right, mm -hmm. uh, proving uh, that this is indeed authentic historic record. Welcome to my world, yeah. I know, that's, I can imagine. Now I understand why you're so I mean, excited about it. Leviticus has, Leviticus has become my go-to book. Yeah. You know? I just yeah. Leviticus 11, Leviticus 15, that's where we read about when your pottery becomes impure, says the Lord, you must break it. And when we're trying to understand stone vessels in the Second Temple period, they they harken back to those verses, mm. Leviticus seven, which I just quoted about the animal bone. So I mean, Leviticus is my new best friend. I mean, I'm so I'm in it all the time. Yeah, it to me it's just almost here's the value of a true liberal arts education. Let's say a Christian liberal arts education, a broad reading and understanding of the whole picture, and then you can go deep in different areas and specialize. But at least I had the advantage when we began to get disproportionate bones from the right side. At least I, as a Bible reader, I did not sleep through my Leviticus, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> I had the advantage of being able to go, wait a minute, that rings a bell. Uh, you know, let's go back there and let's check this out. Yeah. So listen, uh, the Associates for Biblical Research, you guys are always looking for volunteers to help you, and it sounds like you've already filled up for this year, which is fantastic. <laughs> um, but yeah. we know th this is a great opportunity for someone who's who's looking to travel to Israel, perhaps for the first time, and not just see the sites, but those, those people who want to get their hands dirty. They want to be involved in this exciting uncovering of ancient history. 
where can our listeners learn more about um, volunteering on a dig like this? Our website is digshiloh.org, and, and they can go there. The, the dates, the, the itinerary, updates on what we're finding. They can also come to my school's website, thebibleseminary.edu. They can also visit my personal website, scottstripling.net. And they'll be able to follow along with what we're doing in the field. And we do welcome pretty much, you know, we, anybody to come with us. This year's kind of an exception where we're already out of space. But uh, people, if they can't go, maybe they can donate and help us in that way. Because, you know, when you're dealing with science and these type things, nothing's cheap. And um, so you know, people are able to pray for us, donate, come work with us. That would be just awesome. All right. So, Scott, you recently became, was it the president of the Near East Archaeological Society? Well, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, NEAS is a fantastic organization, an academic society within the Evangelical Theological Society. So we meet every November in different cities across America, and geeks come together, people interested in archaeology. Some of us are actual archaeologists, others are just aficionados, and people present academic papers. We have our own journal, the uh, Near East Archaeological Society Bulletin, which is a peer-reviewed journal, which we publish, and a popular magazine, Artifacts, and so uh, it gives people a chance to hear from conservative scholars weighing in on, on the latest academic issues regarding uh, archaeology. Um, I would ask people to, to go to our website, check it out, and consider becoming a member. It's only $60 a year. They'll get our journal, they'll get our magazine, and they'll be able to follow with uh, what we're doing. And that website is neasociety.org. Well, that's awesome. I'm I'm thrilled that you're getting these opportunities. Um, you know, we if we know anything about you, Scott, you're you're not doing it for the notoriety. You're not doing it for the. Although he has kind of become it's, like it's the become Indiana Jones of the know? archaeological Seriously, world. You so. do need to find yourself a hat and a whip. But in the meantime, <laughs> we appreciate you being involved with things like that. It gets more people excited about archaeology. I know it has for our team, and I have no doubt it it has for so many others. So we appreciate all these well, different I ways. That that. No, it's. I'm I'm really happy and thrilled and honored to be able to get to do what what I'm doing. Um, I'm going to be the keynote speaker at the Museum of the Bible um, late April, um, and I'm going to be giving a couple of lectures there. So I don't know exactly when you guys are going to air this, but if people are in the Northeast or even if they're not, they may want to fly in and take advantage of this. They can see the Museum of the Bible at the same time that they take in these uh, lectures. My first lecture is going to be on the map. Honeyball tablet. Um, of course, there's a lot of interest in that. The second one will be on ritual purity and late Second Temple period Judaism. Will be really fascinating. Mm. Excellent. That's some great opportunities there because that museum is fantastic. So, well, we wish you the best of luck in this year's dig, and uh, just so excited about uh, you getting this article uh, and just everything that you've been working on over the past year. So it was. Uh, we're recording this, and uh, it was about a year ago that you made that announcement yeah. that has just, I think, rocked the biblical world, and we've been seeing news about it ever since. So thank you so <laughs> much, Scott, for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Inroads is a production of Appian Media. We're a nonprofit video production company that is 100% crowdfunded. If you're interested in learning more about how you can support Appian Media so we can continue to create more great free content, visit us at appianmedia.org.